Our Bible reading this evening is Judges chapter 3 from verse 12 to verse 30. Judges 3, 12 to 30. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper chamber of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed over it. Then Ehud went out of the, to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Saray. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites. All vigorous and strong, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Well, evening, everybody. 
I wonder what you made of that. Uh, One of the jobs that I have is I uh, work for a ministry training course, and that involves giving to uh, young preachers uh, some passages to practice on, and they don't always thank me. And so it felt like I was on the receiving end of divine revenge when I was given Judges chapter 3. And you might be slightly surprised, you're on a relaxing holiday, and last night we had Othniel, and tonight it's Ehud in the palace with the dagger. And the question with passages like that, that, this, is what relevance do they have? You know, as I face a variety of challenges in my life, what difference will Ehud in the palace with the dagger make to me? I uh, have various strange hobbies. One of my strange hobbies is that I umpire cricket. And so there are one or two cricketers in Oxfordshire where I have a slightly uneasy relationship. But let's be honest, we haven't got to Dagger's Drawn stage yet. That might be a bit of an overreaction. How do you cope with passages like this? Or, or how do you cope with other passages in the Old Testament where there's enemies and violence and bloodshed? What difference is it supposed to make? Well, last night Alistair reminded us that God hasn't changed. And so as we look at the story of Judges, we meet our unchanging gods. But there is another way in which this section has abiding relevance for us. We are in the middle of a war that we can't see. Let me make an overgeneralization. In the Old Testament, God's people, they're in a physical land... And by and large, they're facing physical enemies who conduct war, who threaten to invade, and so on. By the time you get to the New Testament, things have changed slightly. We're not in a physical land. We're united by the Holy Spirit living within us. And the primary emphasis in the New Testament is that we face spiritual enemies, The Apostle Paul makes that clear. He says in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. Christians are in a battle. Now, my guess is that even if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, it's not hard to realize that there is evil in the world. And those of us who are Christians will know that we are the object of Satan's attacks, his fiery darts in Ephesians 6 language. We're in a battle with one who seeks to use deception. Notice the way Satan has always done that. He basically deceives people. He says, this sin that you're tempted by will be really good for you. Be the path to freedom. Give you lots of pleasure with no consequences. We're in a battle with one who will deceive us as to what is good. And you know that because if you're a Christian, you face temptation. And it can be a painful battle. We face a battle with the one who the Bible describes as our accuser. Have you noticed that Satan isn't consistent? 
He sows deception. You know, give in to that sin. It, it'll be fine. And hey, you can pray for forgiveness. And then as soon as you have given in, he jumps 180 degrees and says, you've blown it now. He accuses us. Reminds us of our sin. Causes us to doubt our relationship with God. And then, and we've heard this movingly tonight, Satan who uses deception, who uses accusation, is also the one who uses persecution. You see that in Revelation, the way he comes alongside human authorities to imprison and even kill God's people. Christians are engaged in a battle with one who will seek to deceive, with one who will seek to accuse so we can't enjoy our relationship with God, with one who will seek to persecute so we give in to fear. And it's really helpful for us to notice that. Because sometimes when you face temptation or when you face accusation, you can think, oh, this is me just thinking clearly and rationally, and we forget there's a battle on There is a battle that we can't see, but is real and impacts our lives. And so as you see in the Old Testament language of enemies, and you think, well, who are my enemies? Paul would tell us, yeah, you've got enemies. You just can't see them most of the time. Christians are in a battle. And I hope having that in the back of our minds will bring Judges 3 to life for us. Say, okay, this has got more to do with me than I might anticipate. Because what we'll discover as we look at Judges chapter 3 is actually we're in the story. I don't know whether you can support yourselves as you work the way through, but you're in this story. And so let's dig in, shall we? Because what we see at the beginning of the story is the road to slavery. The road to slavery. You see, Alistair left Israel in a happy place last night. They're in the promised land, they're in the place that God had promised them. They're relating to God, they know peace for 40 years. And I guess you can imagine the sense of relief. We were under slavery for eight years, but God rescued us through Othniel, and now we have peace. And what should have happened at that point is this. A message should have rippled down the generations. Whatever you do... Don't depart from the Lord. Got that? It was a disaster last time. He's given us this land. Whatever you do, don't depart from the Lord. It always leads to disaster. And yet with a depressing sense of inevitability, and as you keep reading churches, it really is a depressing sense of inevitability, you get verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We're not given detail, but almost certainly it's idolatry again. You've got the creator, the God of Israel, the generous God who gives them the promised land, and they say, no, 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 no. What the locals worship, that doesn't make quite as many demands on us. Sure to work just as well. And so they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. It is purely idiotic, and yet they do it. And there are consequences. B 
Because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline, Jesus says in the New Testament. And this God is the same. And that's what happens in Judges 3. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. He loves us too much to allow us to wander away from him without consequence. And the consequences are pretty humiliating. I mean, Moab's not quite a superpower. It's not really Assyria or Babylon. This is rather like England losing to Iceland at football, if you remember back to those days. And the city of Palms, that's Jericho. Jericho was the highlight of the people taking the promised land, and well, that's gone now. That's under Moab control. And they're made subject to Eglon. And we'll see that Eglon's not the most impressive figure in the world. And the Israelites face that humiliation. Now, we need to take this seriously. Because this is telling us that sin and idolatry and ignoring the Lord is always a pathway to disaster. You see, Satan, as he uses deception, says, you know, it is the way to pleasure. It is the way to freedom. I don't know what your favorite idol is, whether it is material prosperity, whether it's romantic love, whether it's just comfort, or whether there's a particular sin that you keep going back to. And it promises pleasure and it promises relief. And Judges 3 is here to tell us it is always the pathway to slavery. Because it is ingratitude. You know, the Lord has given these people so much. He's given them the land. And he's given us so much in the Lord Jesus. Sin is always ingratitude. And it always incites the Lord's discipline. Have you never, ever noticed that as a Christian, it's really hard to sin happily? Have you ever noticed that? You know, sin promises various pleasures, and, and yet what happens when you sin if you're a real Christian is that the Holy Spirit within you goes, Ugh. and you have this sort of inner sense of angst, and so you can't really enjoy the sin properly because you've got the Spirit who's going, Ugh, within and you feel like you're pulled in two different directions and the Lord disciplines those he loves. Sin will always lead to that sense of angst. And it gives the devil a foothold. It allows the devil to start accusing, ha ha, I'm sure he doesn't love you now. And so what you have in Judges 3 is idolatry leading to slavery, leading to a sense of divine distance and to Satan rejoicing. And my guess is that there's a number around the tent who know what I'm talking about. And if you're honest, that's where you are now. Just as Israel ended up trapped under Eglon, you feel trapped. Maybe trapped by a pattern of sin that you can't get out of. Maybe trapped by a sense of an insecure relationship with God because you know you've been running after something else. 
And it might even be that you're sort of really involved in ministry and church and nobody else will guess. But it's quite a while since you've enjoyed being a Christian. And you know why? It's because you follow the judge's three path to slavery of turning away from the Lord, and there's a kind of inner turmoil going on within you. Because sin leads to disaster. It might start small, but then we keep indulging it, keep indulging it, keep indulging it. It turns the Lord less and less and less, and there's a slavery that kicks in. Well, here's the good news. If that's you, tonight is a message of glorious hope. Tonight is a message of glorious hope because we see the turning point. And the turning point comes in verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. I mean, it took them 18 years. It took them 18 years of saying, yeah, maybe these idols will do. But eventually they realize that these idols don't deliver quite as much as they hoped they would. And that life away from God was not all that it was cracked up to be. And maybe they had a sense of hope, despite the way we've treated him, perhaps, perhaps he will listen to us. And they cry out to God, Lord, we're in this slavery. Help us. Help us. And you get the most remarkable thing. And the Lord gave them a deliverer. Isn't he gracious? Sorry, I I helped your predecessors. I mean, surely you should have learned the lesson. No, God hears their cry and he gives them a deliverer. He gives them a rescuer. He gives them a savior. You know, he's like that all the way through the Bible. The people build the Tower of Babel, a great affront to God. And what does God do? Quietly, he chooses Abraham, through whom the world will be blessed. Or later on in Old Testament history, God's people sin against him again and again and again, until finally they go into exile in Babylon. And what does God say to those who are in exile in Babylon? Oh, I've still got plans to prosper you and to give you a future. And then you think about the whole world marked by sin. What does God do? He gives one whose very name means God's the rescue. Because he will save his people from their sins. I don't know about you. My only hope is that the God of the Bible is real. My only hope is that the God who is in control of the universe is the God of Judges 3.15. That's my only hope, actually. That the God in control of the universe is this sort of God who will send a deliverer for those who are trapped in sin. Actually, I tell a lie, I do know about you. Your only hope is that the God of the universe is the God of Judges 3.15. He sends rescuers for those who are trapped in sin. And praise God, he still is. He still is that sort of God who sends rescuers for those who are trapped in sin. So let's look at that rescuer. Because what we see is that he is a surprising saviour. Because we see that his name is Ehud. And the main thing that is underlined about Ehud is this. He's left-handed. 
Now, I reckon some of you around the tent, great, there is finally somebody in the Bible who is on my side. Now, to be honest, there's a bit of a debate about what that means. It could be that he's sort of amazingly ambidextrous. Could mean actually he's disabled down his right side. Could mean that's why he's left-handed, that there's a degree of disability there. Either way, it's clearly unconventional because it's underlined. And Ehud has to make a trip to Eglon, the king of Moab. And this is all a bit humiliating because he's got to go and bring tribute to him, which is basically Ehud going to Eglon and saying, Eglon, you are greater than me. Moab, you are greater than Israel. And it involved bringing Israelite finance. You know, here is our riches for you to enjoy, Eglon. Now, Eglon is described as a very fat man. Thanks for giving me this one, James. Um, Eglon is described as a very fat man. And maybe at a more serious level, it kind of implies that Eglon has got fat on Israelite riches. You know, the Israelites, they're living under Eglon's slavery. Maybe it is the case that the Israelites are giving all their wealth to Eglon, who's, well, enjoying himself. But Ehud, even as he thinks about going off to pay tribute to Eglon, Ehud has a cunning plan. He straps a dagger to his thigh, and because he's left-handed, it's on the opposite side to the way it would normally go. And so he arrives on this humiliating trip, and he does the tribute bit. Oh, great Eglon, king of Moab, I bow down before you. Here are the Israelite finances, and maybe Eglon's imagining some more luxury food. And then he goes on his way. But Ehud sort of stops halfway back to Israel and sends those who are with him back home. And Ehud returns to Eglon. Eglon. I have a secret message for you. Ooh, Eglon thinks. I wonder what that is. And so Eglon, because he's curious, you know, everybody out. And they see no threat. Maybe it is because Ehud is disabled. Maybe because Israel isn't that impressive. Maybe it is because the dagger's not where it would normally be. And so they're left alone. And Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. And Eglon stands up, probably not very quickly, and as he does so, Ehud plunges this dagger into Eglon. And because Eglon is so vast, the the fat sort of sinks over it, which means that the dagger isn't coming out, but if you'll forgive me, what is coming out are the contents of Eglon's bowels. Now, will you forgive me, that basically provides the backdrop for what I can only describe as biblical toilet humor. Because Ehud, you know, locks the doors because he's got to get away and, well, he needs some time to escape. So Ehud escapes, doors are locked, and the servants are left outside. And they're not quite sure what's going on. All they would know is there is quite a powerful smell emerging. And you can imagine, can't you, the sort of talking to each other outside. And and nobody quite wants to mention it. 
But the wait is getting a long time, and so maybe it's whispered from one to the other. Do you think he's on the toilet? Maybe. And so the wait goes on. Well, should we go inside? We can't go inside. We'll find him on the toilet. That'd be really embarrassing. So the wait goes on and on until finally, say, Look, one of us is going to have to go in. Have you got the key? Now, where's the key? And so they're waiting and waiting until finally they go in. And well, there is Eglon, lying on the ground, dead. What do you make of this? Dagger? Murder? Discharged bowels? I've noticed it hasn't produced a vast number of hallelujahs around the tent yet. But I wonder whether you can imagine being an Israelite for a moment. This is Eglon. The man who, if you like, has enjoyed your poverty. The one who's kept you in slavery. And now he's dead and there's a chance of freedom. I reckon there would have been a few hallelujahs in Israel that night. Well, let me make it contemporary. Imagine it was Vladimir Putin. Imagine it was somebody from a town where the bombs had fallen who'd got in. And Putin was killed such that the war was over and the Ukrainians could enjoy peace. That would probably settle for a few hallelujahs. Or let's actually go to the real equivalent. Imagine people who are living in slavery because they've been trapped by sin and they've been trapped by Satan using that sin. If you like, Satan growing fat off other people's slavery because he's the ultimate parasite and contributes nothing. And then imagine with those people in slavery, imagine a man in Jerusalem. Imagine an Israelite. Imagine a man who looks absolutely no threat at all because he's been flogged and beaten and he's walking in disgrace to a place of shameful execution, a place of utter humiliation. And yet imagine that as that man goes to that place, looking like no threat, imagine that he's got a plan. A plan that's way better than strapping a dagger to a thigh. A plan that has been agreed with his father before the world began. And imagine, as Jesus goes to Golgotha, what he is effectively saying to sin and to Satan, I have got a message from God for you. And that what is happening is as the nails are pushed into his palms, what he is effectively doing is plunging a dagger into Satan so that he's defeated forever. And that's worth a hallelujah. Because that's what's happening. This most unlikely of saviors is defeating our ultimate enemy in the most astonishing way so that he might be defeated forever. And the source of sin and the source of death might be, as we'll see in Colossians, be publicly humiliated as Jesus dies on the cross. 
Because you know how Satan keeps us bound? He keeps us bound by saying you've sinned, you've messed up, you can't have a relationship with God. And it is that lie that Jesus defeats once and for all at the cross. Which is why the Christian sings, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Oh yes, Satan will still tempt, and he'll still accuse, and he'll still persecute, but never forget that our ultimate enemy is basically tottering around with his bowels spilling out. Because our glorious left-handed saviour has arrived, and his name is Jesus. Which leads me to the final thing, And the final thing is vital if we're going to grasp the difference that this makes to us. Because the last thing is this. Hear the trumpet. Hear the trumpet. You see, the story hasn't quite ended. You see, Ahud escapes. And we see him again in verse 27 as he gets back home. And he blows a trumpet, verse 27, in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. This is the message that he announced when he got home. Follow me, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. You see, he's calling the people to make the most of the freedom that is now available to them. Look, Eglon is dead. That gives us an opportunity to triumph over Moab. And so the people enter into that. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, verse 29. All vigorous and strong. No one escapes. Now, brutal things happen in war. But this was the judgment of God on Moab. And this was what was necessary for God's people to have peace. But the Israelites needed to enter into it, as it were, to enter into this victory. And that's what they did, with the results that the land had peace for 80 years. Can you imagine being in Israel that night? Can you imagine that sense of, gosh, we're now free? Because our enemy has been defeated, the one who was enslaving us. Can you imagine it? One of the most moving moments of my life was actually standing in Berlin. And standing in Berlin next to are kind of fragments of the Berlin Wall. And as I stood there, your mind just sort of went back to thinking, gosh, what must it have been like to, to live, sort of captured, as it were, within the city and able to get out for all those years? You're next to the fragment. There was a, a memorial of those who tried to escape and been shot dead at that very spot. And then right next door, there was a museum. And in the museum, there were the kind of videos showing that night in 1989, when the wall came down, and the car horns were blaring, and the flags were waving, 
and the songs were going up and it was the noise of celebration because finally we're free. And that's the Christian story. (laughs) That's the Christian story. John Bunyan, the uh, 17th century writer, his best-known work is Pilgrim's Progress, uh, more of that on Tuesday night, but his less-known work is The Holy War. And in The Holy War, it's all about the battle for man's soul, probably slightly dated language, but a picture of the human hearts. And Bunyan has man's soul captured by Diabolus, the brutal enemy. And the man's soul is, is held by Diabolus, and the people are in slavery until Prince Emmanuel comes along. And Prince Emmanuel wins a great battle and sets man's soul free. Bunyan speaks of the difference that it makes them. The people who were bound with ropes now had chains of gold. The people whose feet were tied up could now run freely. The people facing death now had life. And in Mansell, the bells did ring and the people did sing. And Bunyan says, that's the Christian story. We're free. Free from Satan's accusations. Free from slavery to sin. Free to live the life we're meant for. Free to know God. And that's our story. So can I throw a really important question at you tonight? Does your life look like pre-Ahood or post-Ahood? You know, as you think about your life, does it still look sort of all bound up in slavery to sin and not really enjoying knowing God and and a sense of bondage and captivity? Or does your life look like the freedom that Jesus won for us? The freedom that the Israelites have post Ehud? I reckon that's a really important question for us as individuals in our churches. Do our lives look pre-Jesus or post-Jesus? Are we really getting to enjoy the freedom that Jesus has won for us? As I've been working on this passage, there's been a verse in the New Testament that's been in my head from Romans chapter 6. Sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. Or can I put that in Judges 3 language? Sin shall not be your eglon to whom you have to pay tribute. Because Jesus, our greater Ehud, has triumphed. And every day is a, light, is a day lived under his victory. I wonder, do you believe that? That Jesus really has triumphed and we live in freedom You see, those verses at the end of Judges 3, it seems to me, are actually the verses that describe present Christian experience. Do you remember what Ehud says to them? Your enemy, God has given your enemy into your hands. He is defeated. So follow me and enter into the victory by putting to death that which remains. Friends, we don't need to be defeatist. Our enemy has been defeated and one day will utterly disappear. 
And we're called to enjoy that freedom by putting to death the sin that remains in our life. Possible because Jesus triumphed. Possible because we want to enjoy the life with God that Jesus has won for us. And so it might be tonight that tonight is a night to do business with God. Remember the turning point? The Israelites cried out to the Lord. And it might be if actually we just feel captured by a particular sin or or just by a pattern of idolatry, what we want to do is we want to go to the Lord tonight and say, Lord, I know that's the slavery I put myself back under. But I want to believe and hold on to the fact that Jesus has come and Jesus has triumphed. And so I want to live in his victory and his freedom because he has triumphed. And it might be that then tonight becomes quite an important turning point for us as well. As we do business with God and we speak to him. And we live in the freedom that he has won for us. Because friends, we've got a victory song. Jesus triumphed. Satan is defeated. And Jesus saves. Let's pray together. Just a moment of quiet. It might be that just the Lord's been putting his hand on something and Maybe you want to confess sin to the Lord and confess your trust afresh in the Lord Jesus and his victory and triumph. Just a moment of quiet and then I'll pray. Lord, we bow in your presence. We confess our sin to you, a a sin that so often results in a a sense of your discipline and the heaviness of your hand on us. And yet, Lord, with all our hearts, we praise you that we don't need to stay there. We don't need to listen to Satan's accusation because we praise you, Lord Jesus, that at the cross you have triumphed and that he has been defeated. And so we pray, Lord, please help us to enter into that. Help us to live in your victory and in the freedom you have won for us. Help us to live day by day knowing that this is another day, Lord Jesus, when you have triumphed and when Satan has been defeated. And we pray that you would help us to live in your victory, we pray. For your name's sake. Amen.